Good morning. Welcome here, everybody. Wow, I love 8.30 services. This is good. Uh, yeah, usually, so the, the role that I'm in over at Northview has me as a part of uh, one of our campuses, and we meet in a Christian high school, and so our setup starts at uh, 6.30 in the morning. So 8.30 uh, was a nice and leisurely beginning to my day, so I trust that we'll all be uh, running full speed by the time we're singing our response songs after the, after the sermon. Uh, there's a couple of guys up here that brought clipboards with them to take notes, and so I'm very excited to have my most <laughs> attentive listeners right in front of me. This is going to be good. Um, so uh, my parents live in an area that was significantly affected by the flooding that took place in November of 2021. They live right out in the flats in what was formerly the lake bed. Fortunately for them, though they had a lot of water come into their basement, about almost four feet right up to under the light switches, uh, all that the damage that they sustained uh, was some storage that was lost. It's kind of a concrete storage area with old family stuff and Christmas decorations in there. But, but one of the things that has struck me over the, over the course of kind of months now, looking back at, at this really significant event that happened in, in the life of my city, Abbotsford, uh, was how wide a range of responses there was when these difficult days came. See, for some people, they, they have lived in that area long enough, my mother being one of these people, they've lived in that area long enough that they actually remember back to uh, other significant flooding events which had happened. My mom liked to tell stories about the, the more recent flood in the 90s where her brother-in-law was out in his uh, aluminum boat picking up people at their houses, right? There are some people who, because they have this understanding, this knowledge of what these difficult times are like, they're able to respond in, in kind of more balanced, effective ways. They knew which documents to preserve, to have set in safe places. They knew when it was time to leave. But there's a, a totally different set of people that live in that same area who responded to these difficult days very differently because uh, for whatever reason, they hadn't been in this situation before. Maybe they're younger, and so, like myself, I wasn't born when the previous flooding had happened. So yeah, they've lived there their whole life, but they didn't really know what these difficult days were actually going to require of them. For other people, they, they moved into the area within the last 30 years or so. And so they too were, were unaware of what it takes to respond to this kind of an event. See, see in those moments, these new people who, who don't know what the difficult days are like would have really benefited from some of the insight and the wisdom of the more long-tenured residents of the region. What we have in our text today is advice from an older, wiser mentor to a younger pastor. And here is the, the situation into which this advice is being given. I'm just going to read for us 2 Timothy 3.1 before it's up on the screen. Understand this, Paul says, in the last days there will come times of difficulty. When the New Testament refers to last days, it typically refers to the days that we currently live in. But between Jesus' first arrival and his later return, that time in between the New Testament often refers to as the last days. And so what Paul is writing in, in the section that we have here is advice for Timothy for the days that he currently lives in, how to navigate these difficult days well. Unless you think sometimes there's a bit of confusion in a, in a personal letter in the scriptures, is this just for Timothy? Is this just for pastors? I, I think this is a warning that applies to all of us who are a part of the church. So I'm going to frame my teaching around one main question that I think the text answers in two 
ways. So the main question is, how can we navigate these difficult days well? And the two answers that we're going to see is avoid those who bring the difficulty and trust that God will come through. So one question that I'll answer in two ways. But I'm going to frame my sermon a little bit differently. What we're going to do is I'm going to read the entirety of the text in one go. We're going to look first at what are these people like who bring these difficult days? And then what are we to do in light of the information that we have? So I'm going to read 2 Timothy 3 verses 1 to 9 as we first think about what are these people like? How can we tell who it is that brings these difficult days? So 2 Timothy 3 verses 1 to 9. Understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Fun passage for us this morning. We're going to begin by by seeing how is it that we are to recognize the people who will bring difficult times. And so maybe you noticed right away, Paul begins this text with a long list of descriptors. And it's it's a doozy of a list. I'm going to draw your attention to the the middle of the list one more time and just point out the the kind of the the layering of all of these different descriptors that Paul uses. See, when you look at a list, you can either pick it apart and look at all the different pieces, or you can kind of look at the cumulative weight of the list. And so I want us to think about the cumulative weight of these lists. People who are proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control. Brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, and swollen with conceit. That's a list. But, but ultimately, what's really significant about the list is Paul is not just concerned with all of these traits, right? We, we could look at people, and if we see these behaviors, they'd be pretty easy to spot. But Paul is also concerned with, with making sure we understand where these kinds of behaviors come from in these people who cause difficulty, And that's what the start and the end of the list really help us to see. Paul describes them as people who love self, who love money, and who love pleasures instead of loving God. Why these three? What do they love instead? They love self, money, and pleasures, which really can all kind of be wrapped up into love of self instead of love of God. See, why do people love money? Because they love what money can do for them self. Why do people seek pleasure? Because it's a a kind of self-fulfillment, right? This is the kind of person that Paul is describing from the get-go. These are people who love themselves instead of loving God. Apparently, it was as big a problem in Paul's day as that continues to be in our present day and has been in between those two. 
people continually love themselves more than they love God. So, so we read this list, right? There, there's all these really kind of extreme behaviors on there, and we think, why is Paul even bothering to write this warning to Timothy about these people? Shouldn't it be abundantly clear who it is in their midst that loves themselves more than they love God? Right? There, there's a, quite a detailed list that we're given. So it seems like it should be pretty easy. Like a warning may not be the most urgent kind of thing. Well, what Paul writes right at the end of the list indicates to us that it's a little bit more complicated than just picking easy names out of a crowd and saying, these are the, these are the people who will bring difficulty. Because what, what does he say about these people? They have the appearance of godliness somehow while denying its power. Somehow, this list of really like a bad, wicked, toxic, divisive, destructive behaviors is masked under an appearance of godliness still. Right, right? These are people who, who put up a front of godliness, who, who outwardly and publicly have a, a polished look to them. And that shouldn't surprise us because you and I know uh, that we all put up a front of godliness in some ways. And I'm not saying that because I think we all somehow fit into this list of difficult people that we should watch out for, right? It's not look to your right, look to your left, all three of you are the problem. But, but rather, we all know that fronts of godliness, the appearance of godliness, is kind of the norm in the church. And I say that because if you were to come to church and you were met by a greeter at the door and they said, oh, hey, it's good to see you, how was your weekend? You might tell them about the home improvement project that you undertook, but you'll conveniently leave out the argument that you had when the IKEA furniture didn't go together quite as smoothly as IKEA furniture should go together. Or, or you'll talk about the day trip you took to, to the Vancouver Aquarium, but you'll leave out the argument that ensued when someone took a wrong turn or when you disagreed about which parking garage to use. We're, we're always putting up appearances of godliness. So this warning that Paul is giving us is a pretty serious one because these are people who will be mixed right into the church community who have the appearance of godliness, but as he says, have denied its power. Another way of saying that is their, their religion is entirely outward, but is in no way inward. These are the kinds of people that Paul is warning us about. Uh, Jesus has some related images that he uses to describe people that kind of really vividly put it to us. In Matthew 23, verses 25 to 28, I'm just going to read kind of a little bit at the start and a little bit at the end of those verses. Here's, here's some images that Jesus uses. He says, For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. And then, and then a little bit lower down. You are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanness. And then this is his summary statement. So you outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Right? right? These people are like if you have a thermos of soup and you eat the soup from the thermos, but you put the lid back on and tighten it before you put it in the dishwasher. Right? It's going to come out looking really clean on the outside, but eventually, when you crack that lid open again, you're going to see all kinds of things festering on the inside. This is what these people are like. 
But Paul isn't just concerned with what, what the people are like, with how to identify them and spot them when you see the patterns in their life. Paul is also very concerned that Timothy be aware of the impact that these people have on a church community. Did you, did you notice that? There, there are some people within this larger group of difficult people who will be a little bit more proactive in their engagement in church life. They will, to use Paul's language, sneak into houses to capture weak women. The NIV, if you have an NIV with you, says they, they worm their way into people's houses. There, there's kind of a, a subtlety and an, like a very quiet evil going on if these people are allowed to continue to engage in church life unaddressed, if they are allowed free reign to do whatever it is that they want. See, see it's likely that Paul is saying that there are some women in this congregation in particular, right? Timothy was a pastor in Ephesus. There are likely some women in that congregation in particular who were uh, particularly vulnerable to these kinds of difficult people. And as we see the threefold description of what these women are like, it helps us to understand why Paul is so concerned that they not be victimized by the difficult people in their midst. Because what does he describe them as? They are burdened with sins. They, they currently live in, in patterns of sin that have trapped them. That makes one layer of vulnerability. They are led astray by various passions. Maybe these are immature Christians in the church body. And, and they still struggle with all kinds of different desires, things that they want for themselves. And then finally, they're always learning, but never arriving at a knowledge of the truth. These are not the most discerning listeners in the church family. People who will give anyone an audience and who can be swayed by all kinds of plausible sounding arguments. See, Paul's concern isn't that these are women who are particularly susceptible to these things, but that there are vulnerable people in the midst of any church family who need to be protected from the difficult people who come. Uh, there's a couple at, at my church at the campus that I serve at who has recently taken in a little boy as a foster child. What, why do families do things like that? Well, in this family, the, the husband, the father of the family has worked for a long time as a police officer. And so he's seen firsthand the, the kind of damaging effects that there can be on, on children who are born into situations that are uh, really dysfunctional. Right? He, he, they know that children are particularly vulnerable and need to be protected from people who may not have their best interests in mind. Not to say that the parents of these children wouldn't do their very best, but the, the circumstances that they live in are such that they are prone to be victimized by all kinds of brokenness and dysfunction. So they bring this little boy into their home. Their two daughters are so excited to have this, this little brother for however long he stays with this family. They, they do so because they know it matters that you care for the vulnerable in your midst. Paul wants Timothy to understand that when these difficult days are upon him, as they are, that he needs to be concerned for the vulnerable in the midst of the church family. These are people who need a patient and careful and honest pastoral care. And if Timothy neglects the task in front of him, if the, if the Ephesian church neglects the task in front of them, they will receive the opposite of what they would actually need for their health and their upbuilding. But, but again, 
Paul is not done describing these people yet. He, he talks about their, their outward facade that hides an inward depravity. He's talked about kind of the, the proactive group within the group who's going to go forward and cause more destruction and, and condemnation of these weak people if they're allowed free reign to do so. But then finally, uh, he warns about just how serious a spiritual problem these people are. And he does so by appealing to some obscure Old Testament villains. I read the names Janus and Jambres to you earlier. Uh, don't be embarrassed if those are not names that are familiar to you, because those are not names that are actually listed anywhere in the Old Testament. Those are names taken from surrounding Jewish literature, lots of surrounding Jewish literature, that are uh, the names assigned, they may have been their actual names, names assigned to particular characters in a common Old Testament story. So that's a story that takes place in Exodus, the second book of the Bible. And just to very briefly set the scene for you, it, what we have in the Exodus is a time in the history of God's people where they were enslaved in Egypt. Israel had been chosen by God to be his light to the world, but as they were growing from kind of a, an extended family unit into a nation, they ended up in Egypt to escape a famine, and they ended up enslaved when there was a change in Pharaoh. And so uh, God intends to save his people from that slavery, and he does so by calling upon uh, one of the Israelites, Moses. And he says, Moses, I'm going to use you to go to Pharaoh and demand that my people be freed. And Moses says, great idea, God. Uh, the Pharaoh's going to be really happy to part with all of his free manual labor. We're going to need something, some proof that you are a God who is powerful enough to just demand the freedom of your people. And so what, what God does is he sends Moses with his brother Aaron to Pharaoh with the ability to do a sign, to throw a staff on the ground and have it turn into a serpent. And so that's what they do. They go to, they go to Pharaoh and they demand that he release his people. They throw the staff on the ground and it becomes a serpent. But then in Exodus 7, verse 11, we, we hear referred to these magicians of Egypt. And again, they're unnamed there, but this is who Jews understood to be Janus and Jambres, these uh, Egyptian magicians who they come along and after the staff of Aaron has been turned into a serpent, they throw their staffs down and they too become serpents. Right? What, what, were the, what were they doing in that moment? Well, they were working against God's plan of deliverance by trying to say, you, okay, you think your God is powerful because he can do these things? We can do exactly the same thing. They're people who intended to prevent God's good, redemptive, delivering plans from coming to pass. And Paul says, this is what these difficult people in your midst are like. They are like Janus and Jambres. And this is why he's going to call them opposed to the truth, corrupted in mind, and disqualified regarding the faith. He wants Timothy to appreciate the, the severity of what is going on. Right? Timothy might look at their appearance of godliness and say, ah, these are just people who haven't figured it out yet. But what Paul is saying is that, no, in fact, it's far more severe than you, you might be tempted to think it is. These are people who stand as opposed to God as Egyptian magicians did. It's not a matter of just coaching them in the right direction and then unleashing them. They are people who will bring difficulty with them because their hearts are hard against God. So this is the, the composite image of these people that were given. They have this appearance of godliness, 
but deep down inside, their hearts are bent in on themselves. They love themselves instead of loving God, and it creates all of this uh, toxic, abusive, destructive, wicked behavior. And some of them are not going to be content to just be in that state themselves. They're going to go out and drag other people down with them if Timothy is not careful. And all of that together means that they're like Janus and Jambres, people who stand fundamentally opposed to God's work and purposes for his people. So it's a serious situation. This is not something that we ought to take lightly. What the, the nature of the Bible is such that, yes, this happened in significant ways in Timothy's day, but this is written as a warning to the church forever. Because there will always be people who do these kinds of things. And maybe you'll have less when your church is in a really healthy place with strong leadership. Maybe you'll have more in times of transition, but it's something we always need to be aware of as a body of Christians. This is not just an issue delegated to leaders, but something that we are all called to deal with in some way. So, so to finish... I'm going to look again at this text. I'm not going to read the thing in its entirety one more time, but we're going to look at it again through a new lens. In light of this reality, that there are these difficult people who will always be in the church's midst, what are we to do? And there's three things that I'm going to suggest in terms of how does this apply to our lives. The first, I think, is implied by the text, but not stated there clearly, so I'll explain what I mean. And then the next two, I think, are pretty clear in the text itself. So first, the implied one. The first thing that we are to do is to be very carefully discerning when it comes to people that we catch the first hints they might be here to cause difficulty. See, I don't think what Paul is intending to do through the writing of this letter is to create a, a community of cynicism of suspicion, where, where when someone does one thing, makes one mistake, is, is errs, even about something on the list that we read at the start in particular. I, I don't think what Paul wants us to do is then take that one error, take that one mistake, and use it as a, as a weapon of condemnation against someone who is simply a sinner on their way to sanctification. I, I think what Paul wants to achieve through the writing of this part of the letter is to have the church go into its gatherings with their eyes wide open. To be aware, to be ready in the event that there are people like this in their midst because there likely will be at some point in time. Uh, When I did an internship a number of years ago, part of that internship learning experience was seeing how the different ministries in the church function. And so that meant for a weekend I served uh, with our children's ministry. Saturday night and Sunday morning. Served both those in one weekend. And I got paired up with a more experienced Uh, kids' classroom leader. And what he told me uh, just before the kids arrived for the Saturday night service was, uh, there's going to be some boys that come in this class. I call them the Red Bull Gang. (laughs) They come in after the dinner that we have as a church together, after the dessert that they have, and they are just wired. They are full speed, and they are not here to learn. And he, he told me that, not because he was planning to be rude or harsh towards them, not because he wanted me to help him rule with a heavy hand, but just so that I would be ready for the storm that was coming, right? He, he wanted me to come into that classroom with my eyes wide open so that I wouldn't be surprised by the things that are there because that's one way in which we are ready to actually deal with what is in front of us well. See, sometimes when your church is in a really healthy place, you get lulled to sleep a little bit. And there can be patterns of things going on that if you were coming into stuff with your eyes wide open, you you may actually notice. 
And I think this is what Paul intends to create in Timothy and in his church and in the church for the centuries to come, is that we come to church with our eyes wide open. What are our eyes wide open to see, though? What is it that we are to be aware so that we can discern in those other people? We're trying to understand the state of their heart, which is a hard thing to do. We're trying to understand if they, in fact, have a heart that is bent in on itself, that expresses itself in these wicked ways, or if they have a heart that is soft to God and the salvation that he brings. We want to know if, in fact, they will respond to correction or not. And so the the first application in, in discerning carefully might be an uncomfortable one for us, but this requires that you actually talk with people when you see the first signs of problematic patterns. Because there are going to be things that you will never know for sure unless you actually bring them up with the person that you see these troubling patterns in. Right? That's not easy for us. Many of us are more comfortable in the kind of uh, mode of thought that I'm more comfortable in. I'm really good at filling in a set of assumptions around people when I see the first signs of something going on. Sometimes they're gracious assumptions. Oftentimes they're less gracious. But there, there are people, for, for instance, uh, who you look at and you think, ooh, that's a really harsh person. I, I bet if I ever raise this, this thing that I'm noticing to them, they are, they're going to bite my head off. And so I know that's how the conversation is going to go already, so I'm just going to leave it. Uh, there was a person who I used to have a summer job where I would oversee a team or a couple teams of coaches. We would, we would run soccer camps partnering with churches as kind of an outreach tool and discipleship for the children currently in their ministries. And one of those coaches was this kind of person. I was like, oh, do I really want to bring up with them how they're being perceived by their teammates, the other coaches on their team? Or do I really want to let them know that I think they're being a little bit more harsh with these children than they, they think they're being? And I put it off for a while because I, w- I was afraid. I was like, well, w- why would I tell a harsh person that they're being harsh? Because you know what I'm going to get in return? Harsh treatment. But when I did, I was surprised by how surprised they were. They just didn't know that this is how they were being perceived. And so through that conversation, what what I saw was that this was actually a soft-hearted person who wasn't being these kinds of things because they were hard-hearted and bent in on themselves. They were just not aware. It was an area of blindness. Now, now that's not always going to be where those conversations lead. If you have enough of these conversations, you will find there are hard-hearted people who when you raise these things to them, We'll get defensive. We'll turn and attack you instead. Who will give you the, the cold shoulder, the silent treatment. But ultimately, you will not know how to approach people best for the church's good and for their good unless you know what's going on on the inside. And so that's going to require that you engage, that you ask the, the, maybe the uncomfortable questions and do so because you want truth to come forward so that things can move forward in the best ways possible. So the first thing that this dynamic requires is that we discern carefully. The second thing, though, is what happens when you actually do find one of these hard-hearted people in the midst of the church community. How are you then to, to interact with them going forward, right? You bring the correction to them. You follow the biblical pattern one-to-one first, 
and then you bring in a, a couple of trusted witnesses to address them as a group, and then you bring them to the church as a whole, right? If, if in all of those places they resist correction, what are you then to do? Well, Paul tells us in, in verse 5, avoid such people. Now, now, maybe the first image you have in mind is that uh, it's like if you come into the two different entrances on the side of your building and you see someone across the foyer that you're having a little bit of, a, of, a, of an argument with or you're not quite seeing eye to eye on a certain thing, does avoid them just mean you run around the back hallway so that you don't actually have to see them? That's a little bit soft of an application given the severity of the situation that Paul has been describing. In, in fact, the best way to understand it is to think about uh, what it is that the church is to do with people who persist in sin in general. And there are other places where Paul talks about this very issue, right? He, he talks about how the, the church kind of deals with problems in its midst differently than, than like the government does, right? The, the state can enforce uh, fines and penalties and jail time depending on the nature of, of the, the thing being done. The church is a little bit different. I talked a little bit about that formal process already, right? If this person is an official member of the church, there are these steps that you follow, and then you remove them from membership. But Paul is kind of putting his finger on the second aspect of how you deal with people who persist in sin. And it's, there's, a, there's a social kind of outworking of this avoidance. And we read about it in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 9 to 11. I'm just going to read a couple of parts of this. Paul here is writing about people who persist in their sexual sin, but this is true of people who persist in any sin unrepentantly. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexual morally, uh, sexually immoral of this world or the greeters, swindlers, idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world, right? He's not talking about people who don't call themselves Christians in this instruction. But I am writing to you to not associate with anyone who bears the name of brother who calls himself a Christian, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, and then here's a really illustrative point, not even to eat with such a one. What, what Paul is saying is that to, to avoid them, to not associate with them, is to go out of your way to make sure you aren't by your behavior giving them any sign that they are in a good standing with God based on their present sin. This isn't supposed to be personally vindictive. This isn't intended to be uh, cruel to them, but, it, but it's intended to be a social expression of their spiritual reality. Sin alienates all people from God. And apart from Christ's uh, sacrificial death on their behalf, they continue to be alienated from God. And so people who have drawn near for a time and yet through their persistent sinful behavior have shown that maybe in fact they never have drawn near to God need to be shown the error of their ways. And we do it for the church's good, protecting the vulnerable among us, but we also do it for their good. Jesus says we are to treat them like a, like a pagan or a tax collector, right? Someone who is outside of the community, he'll say in Matthew 18. And what, what this is intended to be is again, not to exclude them from public gatherings, right? Tax collectors, pagans were, were very much welcome to come and see what it was that the church was doing. But people who are persistently continuing in their hard-hearted sin against God are not to be given any indication that they're in good standing with God because that would be terrible for them if we did. 
we would be lying to them about what we think they're standing with God is. And, and I realize that this raises all kinds of practical questions, right? Maybe you have someone in a small group you're a part of who persistently disrupts the group with their misleading comments, right? I, I'm not here to tell you exactly what it means to avoid them in that context. That, that when those issues come up, what you are best served by is approaching uh, people on staff who you pay to engage full-time in careful thinking about matters like this. Go to your pastors, go to your elders, go to the people who lead in the ministry areas that you're a part of, and collaboratively think about what would it look like for the good of this person to avoid such people. Because ultimately what we want is for them to be restored. There's no amount of wickedness that is too much for God to cleanse. Paul rightly called himself the chief of sinners before God radically transformed his life and put him on 180 degrees a different direction. There's no amount of, of sin that is too much for God to cleanse, but at the same time, he calls us to participate in that by making sure people know that the way in which they're living sets them at odds with God. We do that for their good and for the good of the church body as a whole. Um, so that's two things. Discern carefully, avoid such people, and, and especially engage, engage the community of faith when you find someone like this in your midst. It's not something you're called to go and do alone. But, but the final thing that hits home for us is the way that Paul ends this letter with an encouragement for Timothy. This is a heavy text, but there's just a, just a, a whisper of hope that Paul injects right in the last verse of this text. What, what does he say? Paul doesn't want Timothy to be discouraged because he writes at the end, they will not get far because their folly will be plain to all. Now, what does Paul mean by that? Does he mean that they will be uh, easy to pick out? People will see right through their appearance of godliness? Not likely. That, that would mean that the situation isn't quite as serious as he seems to be setting it up if this was an easy problem to deal with. What instead will help us understand what he does mean is the little phrase right at the end, as was that of those two men. So we ask the question, how is it that God made the folly of Janus and Jambres plain for all to see? And, and the first way in which he did it was actually in the, in the story that we began with, where these magicians are introduced. Aaron throws his staff down. These, these magicians throw their staffs down. They all become serpents. But Aaron's serpent eats the other serpents. Turns back into a staff. They lost their walking sticks. Later on, there's more hints that, that God is showing the foolishness of not only these Egyptian magicians, but the whole Egyptian nation that worships the gods these magicians mediate between. There, there are uh, plagues which come upon the people of Israel, and, and for a while, the magicians are able to replicate these things, but, but eventually, they succumb to the plagues themselves. They're no longer able to replicate them any further. In fact, Exodus 9 verse 11 tells us that not only were they unable to replicate the signs, we read this, the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. See, eventually their power paled in light of God's overwhelming power. They could not stop God's redemptive purposes. And we get, we get foretastes of that power in these plagues, but, but really the, the focal point where God proved his power over not only the magicians, but over the whole Egyptian nation in its entirety 
was the Exodus event itself, where he delivered his people from the hand of those who had been afflicting them for over 400 years. Doing so not by way of an army, but simply by way of his own sovereign delivering power. This is what we read in 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 to 10, that says something similar about what it is that, that we are anticipating when Jesus comes back. Starting in verse 6. Jesus will return to, to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And he will grant relief to you who are afflicted as well. Jesus is going to show that these people who oppose him and his truth and his salvation are foolish by returning what they do upon them. What God brings when Jesus returns is fair punishment for what people have done. But, but it's not just uh, the end of affliction and the returning of affliction on the people who oppose God. There's something more that God is doing that is always intended to give his people hope in the midst of difficult times. In, in verse 10, you'll read at the bottom, when he comes on that day, Jesus will be glorified in his saints. Notice there, in is an important word. He's not saying that Jesus will come and be, be worshipped by all people. He, he is, and other texts say that. But what, what Paul is writing is that when Jesus returns and delivers his people from, from the afflictions that they have been afflicted with, and he turns those afflictions on their head, the next thing that he's going to do for the people is not just say, your afflictions are gone, go free. He is going to finish the work in them which he began. See, instead of the vulnerable in their midst being led astray, God will not fail to take even the most vulnerable person in the midst of any congregation and bring them to the glorified state he intends to bring them to. God will be glorified in his people when we are made to be like Jesus. And there is that sure hope that at the end of all of these difficult times, God will not fail to bring about his salvation. As he did for the Israelites, he will do for his church. And this is the great hope that Timothy needs to remember, that you and I need to remember in the midst of all of these difficult days, that God will not fail to bring about the end of his salvation. So, so uh, Jesus has given us all that we need to navigate the flood of difficulty which is coming our way. He's, he has told us in his word what it is we are to look out for, and he has told us what it is we need to do for the good of the church and for even the good of the offending parties. But at the end of the day, he has also told us how the story is going to end. These difficult days will not last forever. He will afflict those who afflict us and bring us to the future glory he has promised. So I'm going to pray for us to that end, and then we're going to turn and sing a couple of songs in response. So let's pray together. Um, Father, texts like this remind us of the, the ongoing brokenness of the world. And Father, whether we really resonate with this, this text right now or not, because of the, the relative health of our church situation, God, God it's an, an important reminder we always need to have uh, that there are, in fact, people who intend to oppose your working in the world. And yet, God, the reminder that we need, that we always need to remember, is that the, those people who oppose you will not suffocate your good workings, but in fact, even through those things you intend to accomplish exactly your good purposes, that your justice would come to bear and that the work you began in the person of Jesus will be completed when he returns. And so, Father, give us hope. Give us eyes to see 
clearly, give us the courage to have difficult conversations, give us the, the humility to engage other people in our, in our church body when we need help. And Father, what we ask is that you would protect your church until you come and restore all things. We pray this in Jesus' name, by the Spirit's power. Amen.